to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. This is 112BK. On the show today, an update on hurricane recovery in Puerto Rico, an intro to New York's only milk bank, and Desmond in a tutu. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Ashley Ford, this is 112BK, and this is our new American moment. If you saw the State of the Union on Tuesday, you know what I mean. It's like a moment from the 50s when America was great for white capitalist Christian men, when we scapegoated, embraced white supremacy, and laid the foundation for a society that plunders rather than provides. I get it that some people are uncomfortable with all the changes ruling our country right now. The status quo is comfortable and change is hard, but history is all about change. We can't simply sit back and allow the comfort of some to dictate the reality for all. And it's not simply change for change's sake. It's because change must accompany the rising awareness sweeping the country about sexuality and gender, about income inequality, about the limits of capitalism, about discriminatory policing, and about the environment. For example, Mr. President, it's not a war on beautiful, clean coal, as you said in your speech. It's science. The climate is changing. Fossil fuels contribute to it. Shifts in consciousness and in habits are never easy. But time has long since passed for us to get a little uncomfortable. And I'm not talking about society being uncomfortable because we've got a narcissistic, ignorant, unstable, congenital liar and molester in the Oval Office. I'm talking about discomfort for the establishment. On the show today, four months after Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico, 30% of the island is still without power, and FEMA is ending food and water shipments. We'll get an update from a Puerto Rican Brooklynite on the slow pace of recovery. You've heard of blood banks, of course. Well now, consider milk banks. New York has one, and we'll talk to its executive director. And then a special guest, 112BK's youngest ever. His name is Desmond, and he calls himself amazing. But first, a few things. Mayor de Blasio and the NYPD announced on Tuesday that all of the department's officers and detectives on patrol will be outfitted with body cameras by the end of the year. It's a year earlier than expected. And the move is meant to aid in transparency and restore trust between the police and the community. But transparency has been coming under debate. While former police commissioner William Bratton said he had no intention of releasing the footage captured on the cameras to the public, the mayor and current commissioner say they will, when possible. That's key. Also key is a patrolman's union lawsuit that seeks to block the release of footage without a court order. This revolution may also not be televised. Bloomberg News had a spot on the other day that a cryptocurrency was being launched from a Brooklyn apartment or office. I think a lot of Brooklyn apartments are also offices, right? I mean, mine is. It uses blockchain, a system for peer-to-peer -peer transactions. The currency, called AirSwap, will cut out middlemen like banks and other financial institutions. I'm not going to lie. Blockchain, cryptocurrency, these are all things I'm a bit fuzzy on. It sounds like the future. Also sounds like we're going to have to get some of these folks on to tell us about it firsthand. So stay tuned for that. 
We usually love stories about the Brooklyn Bridge, but not this one. Apparently, it's among 1,800 New York bridges that are structurally deficient. But that's okay, right? Only 135,000 cars cross it a day and about 10,000 pedestrians and cyclists. So how dire is it? The report didn't say, but it is slated for repairs. When? Wait, isn't it already under repair? And back in 2015, a report said that it might be under repair until 2022? Maybe one day we'll have virtual bridges. Think cryptocurrency. And we won't need real bridges anymore. Until then, just whistle past the graveyard. We'll be back in a moment with our first guest. On Tuesday, the Federal Emergency Management Agency announced that it would be discontinuing food and water shipments to hurricane-stricken Puerto Rico, even though one-third of the population is still without power, and many families and schools are still without other basic necessities. With us to talk about the slow pace of recovery and the federal government's role is Elizabeth Yampierre, a Puerto Rican Brooklynite and executive director of UPROSE, Brooklyn's oldest Latino community-based organization. Welcome to 112BK, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me, Ashley. So first of all, Trump said on Tuesday at the State of the Union, and I'm just going to read it here verbatim, to everyone still recovering in Texas, Florida, Louisiana, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, California, and everywhere else, we are with you. We love you, and we will pull through together. My question, are you and is Puerto Rico feeling the love? No, uh, I think uh, the, the Puerto Rican diaspora um, and people in Puerto Rico are feeling the love from the people in the United States that have been engaging in a people-to-people -people recovery, mm -hmm. that have been sending brigades, that have been sending materials, but no love for the federal government at all. Wow. In fact, uh, it's very clear that, um, that they feel uh, that this policy of austerity and neglect and also the insults that have been that, that that have been basically thrown at the Puerto Rican community mm -hmm. in the time of dire need are, are experienced as a violation of their human rights. Absolutely. And I understand that you visited the island recently. What did you see? What's going on over there? Well, I went as part of the Our Power PR campaign, which is a national effort. Uh, to bring resources to the front line of the, cr of the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And I went as a Puerto Rican, I have to say that I went with a heavy heart feeling uh, that, you know, I, I felt like I was feeling the ancestors thinking I was going in and that what I was going to see was devastation. And I did. There is a lot of devastation, but not in the people. Mm -hmm. uh, what I saw were people who are engaged in food sovereignty, who are uh, sharing resources, who have created a network of support around the island, uh, children that are growing food for their parents. Uh, what I saw were people who uh, have not given up. I, I, I know this sounds funny, but I saw in Bieke's a woman who came out in hair curlers, and I thought, um, she's practicing self-care. She has yes. not given up. This is a woman who, in, in the midst of darkness, uh, is right. really caring about herself, and that, and that really uh, swelled my heart and made me feel like Puerto Ricans are going to be all right. Puerto Ricans are yeah. going to be all right. Yeah. Can you tell me, why do you think the federal government has responded in the way they have so far? 
You know, I think that people are going to think this is a simplistic answer, but I think it's because we're talking about a nation of people of color. Mm. Puerto Ricans have always been second-class citizens, um, and um, both here and on the island. Um, you know, the, the government said, uh, the, the president said that they are going to take care of Texas, but they're not going to take care of Puerto Rico, that Puerto Rico is on its right. own. And, um, and so FEMA has been working to evacuate people instead of rebuilding. And the same thing happened in New Orleans. You saw yeah. what happened in New Orleans under a different administration. Mm -hmm. People were evacuated and they've never come back to communities that were historical black communities that deserved all of the amenities that people who are descendants of slavery deserve. Mm -hmm. Now those communities have all kinds of transportation amenities, mm -hmm. all kinds of things that uh, families deserve because the families that have moved there are not people of color. So so it's it's not different for Puerto Rico. You think it'll be the same for Puerto Rico, that as people are evacuated, what'll happen is that, you know, because I wonder about this too, mm -hmm. does this mean that people of certain means are gonna start snapping up property and changing the communities in Puerto Rico? Actually, it's already happening. Uh, disaster oh, wow. capitalism, which is what we call it, uh, there are companies not only speculating, but the government is working uh, with the government of Puerto Rico to privatize schools, privatize mm -hmm. transportation, uh, privatize land. Uh, there are nonprofits, like large environmental nonprofits, mm -hmm. that want to privatize entire areas for conservation without thinking about its impact on the people. So, what they're doing uh, is deepening the colonization of the people in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. um, so, the level of disaster capitalism is coming from all sectors, including people who see the disaster as an opportunity for them to snatch up property at a low cost. Uh, so, that, that is happening. Ooh. What can you tell me about the efforts so far to get electricity on the island? Because as we saw, there were a couple of companies who, um, and initially the Whitefish Company that went out there and said they were going to do it with a, apparently a two-person team, <laughs> and then hiring more workers, uh, they were fired. They pulled out. Yeah, well, the infrastructure was old um, and, and in poor repair before the hurricane. Mm -hmm. And when I was there this week, we were literally driving at night through the highway with no lights. Mm -hmm. There were no lights on. We were driving through the dark, mm -hmm. even up into the mountains. Um, you know, I think that we have to be really careful. The we, Those of us who come from the climate justice movement mm -hmm. talk about this economic model called just transitions, which is basically going towards 100% renewable energy mm -hmm. and making sure that the communities most impacted benefit, that they create local livable economies. Mm -hmm. And so we arrived with um, tons of solar panels, solar generators, solar cubes, mm -hmm. solar operated refrigerators, water filtration devices, mm -hmm. the things that people asked us. And so I think as people start looking at l using natural resources like solar and wind, mm -hmm. uh, they will start pushing towards moving away from the grid and right. moving towards 100% um, renewable energy. Right. Um, and right now, um, you know, we, we see that there's some cleanup, but, but certainly we went into communities in Umacao, in Salinas, in Orocovis, in Vieques, uh, where people have not had electricity for over 135 days, if, if anyone can even imagine what that's like. Um, so it's moving tremendously slow, mm -hmm. uh, but people are basically taking it on uh, upon themselves to generate energy. 
One of the things that you just brought up, environmental justice, um, is something that I think a lot of people either don't understand or misunderstand, but it's something that your organization has been focused on for the past 50 years, correct? It's been, um, the organization's 50 years old, but mm -hmm. it's been working on environmental justice since I started 20 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So before Katrina, mm -hmm. before what happened in Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. before all these things, you were already in this space yes. and working on those things, not just for with the natural disasters around the world in mind, but also natural disasters right here in New York. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what have we learned in your 20 years? Are we seeing things change in New York, in Brooklyn, that will actually help people in the event of a national disaster or a natural disaster? I think that people in New York understand that climate change is here, mm -hmm. and they understand that if they live in the midst of a lot of environmental burdens, that those things like the emissions from brownfields and power plants become projectile dust like they did in Puerto Rico with the 23 super funds in that tiny little island. Right. Um, I think that they are aware of that. I think government is moving a little too slow, mm -hmm. and I think that part of the problem is that our systems were never set up to address the impacts of climate change. Right. legally, in terms of funding, in terms of procurement, um, all of that, none of that was set up to address the impacts of climate change, and climate change is already here. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and because the federal administration is, is denying that climate change is here despite the wildfires in California, what happens in Texas, and what happens in Florida and Puerto Rico all in one year, despite all of that, right. um, the, what we need is a, is, is a city, uh, a municipal government, and mm -hmm. a state government that is willing to be aggressive and to push policies that are as big as the climate crisis. And so we see some of that, like with mm -hmm. some push towards offshore wind, and we see discussions about how we can go zero waste and 100% renewable, but it's all moving too slowly. Here in Brooklyn? Here in New York City, you yeah. know, with uh, the recent announcement from Mayor de Blasio and, uh, and the announcements uh, in the state of the, the, the state announcement from Governor Cuomo, there is movement towards addressing the fact that we are now in the age of climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, but that can't happen with government alone. It has to be a partnership mm -hmm. with communities. Communities have to be at the table. They need to be decision makers. Uh, we need to imagine a different kind of government relationship because we're living in a, in a time period that is different from anything we've experienced. And so people really, we need to create a leaderful society mm -hmm. where there are just relationships because otherwise we'll fail. It can't happen with just the good intentions of government. It has right. to, it really requires a different kind of governmental structure. We'll have to own it. And yeah. I would love to have you back soon to talk about how we can do that here on a <laughs> local level, to sure. be perfectly honest. Until then, people who want to help out in Puerto Rico, what can they do? Where can they go? Sure. So in New York City, the campaign is called Our Power PR NYC, mm -hmm. and it's a coalition of over 30 groups, and they can call UPROS if they want to learn more about that. Mm -hmm. If they want to donate money, I think that it, they need to go to Grassroots International. It's an organization that is working with us as part of what we call the Just Recovery, because sustainability is meaningless without justice. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and Grassroots International is making sure that the front line is is, is who's getting the funding, that Fantastic. basically the people most impacted are getting access to the resources. Fantastic. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Come on. 
It's been conventional wisdom for years now that breast milk is the best option when it comes to an infant's health and well-being. But sometimes a mother's milk might be insufficient or unavailable. It used to be that formula was the only alternative, but an increasing number of states now have milk banks. And since 2016, New York is among them. We have with us today Julie Boucher-Horwitz, executive director of our state's milk bank. Thanks for coming on the show, Julie. Thanks for having me, Ashley. First of all, can you just explain to people what a milk bank is? Yes. <laughs> so um, what we do is we collect uh, extra breast milk from healthy lactating women who are thoroughly screened. We collect it, we pasteurize it, and then we distribute it to babies in need, especially to the hospitals for premature infants. Wow. So we're a bank that has milk instead of money. Fantastic. Because <laughs> babies need more milk than money. Um, uh, they do. I think. <laughs> can you tell me really quickly, how did you end up the executive director of the New York State Milk Bank? And what was the process like opening that milk bank? Well, uh, my interest in milk banks and, and donor milk mm -hmm. came from when I adopted a baby in 1996 from China, and she was a very sick baby. And when I brought her back home, I didn't want her to have formula, which was the only option. So I gave her donor milk, and she thrived. And now she's a 22-year-old senior at Bard College. Wow. So that was my interest first in using donor milk. Mm -hmm. And during that time period, while she was growing, I went back to school and became a nurse and a nurse practitioner, mm -hmm. started working in the hospital, and realized that there was no donor milk in New York. Mm -hmm. So when I became an NP, I bought a 20-inch freezer, obtained a license from the Department of Health, um, purchased 12 bottles of donor milk, put it in my freezer, and told everyone that there was donor milk in New York now. Um, at that time, we had to get it from out of state, mm -hmm. and uh, it just started filtering through my office. Uh, the interest began. Hospitals started using donor milk. And then as time went on, we realized that we needed a, a milk bank in New York State. Because at that point, you're like a breast milk pop-up shop. Exactly. Inside the practice. <laughs> Licensed by the Department Licensed, of Health. Licensed, yes. Not just, <laughs> yeah. not like a little craft booth. No. Like an actual, but, but the bank essentially at that point is just running out of my Where home you office, your home, home office. office, and I encouraged hospitals to obtain a license and mm -hmm. get their milk from licensed milk banks, uh, of which at this point there's only two. There's one in, well, now there's three with us. There's one in Ohio, one in Massachusetts, and then we're the first um, milk bank located in New York State. Wow. So at the time, hospitals had to obtain donor milk outside and then bring it in. Donors had to donate their milk to go out of state, have it processed, and then brought back in. But, but that now, doesn't have to happen anymore. Not anymore. And what's the process like to screen and approve the donors? Well, it's a four-tier process, and it starts with a 20-minute phone conversation mm -hmm. that we are just trying to see if she's immediately excluded as a donor, if she's on some certain medication or she traveled right. somewhere or lived somewhere that's not permitted, that she could have been exposed to an infectious disease. If she right passes that 20-minute screen, screening process, then we send her a very detailed 17-page lifestyle and history review. Mm -hmm. um, and she also needs medical clearance from her doctor and her baby's doctor. When we obtain those materials back, then we can send her to a lab to have her blood tested. And mm -hmm. her blood is tested for five infectious diseases. When that comes back negative, we're allowed to accept her as a donor. Wow. 
So that's a lot. It's a lot for women. It takes several weeks to become a donor and to be approved as a donor, and it's right. a pretty involved commitment on these mothers' parts. Yeah, absolutely, but they're doing it, which is so wonderful. They are them. doing I it. I love it. It's community. <laughs> so let's say there's a baby in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, who's in need of breast milk. How would that baby go about getting what they needed? So it depends if that baby is a uh, inpatient in a hospital or mm. an outpatient in the community. Mm -hmm. So um, if the baby is an inpatient, then the hospital will, if the hospital has a donor milk program, they will give the baby donor milk. If the baby is an outpatient and there's a medical need for it, mm -hmm. uh, we will ask for a letter of uh, a script and a letter of medical necessity, and then we will fight tooth and nail with the insurance company to cover donor milk wow. for that baby. Wow, that's wonderful. So, and if someone's interested in donating? If someone's interested in donating, they can just call the milk bank to be to start the interview, and that's 212-956-6455, and then we can start the process to and, approve them. And there are depots right here in Brooklyn, right? In Park Slope, Borum Hill, and, and in, think, um, uh, Brownsville. in Brownsville, yes, yeah. we have. Uh, we already have a license with two depots: the one in Park Slope and the one in Brownsville. And we're getting a license for the other one. And uh, that's a, a depot is a milk collection site where mm -hmm. a mother can conveniently drop off her milk after she's been approved as a donor. And Brooklyn is within the area that one of our milk riders can pick up the milk and bring it to our milk bank. We have a volunteer female motorcycle club that oh, picks wow. up and delivers milk for us. Get out of here! No, so Brooklyn is in that, that territory that we could have that happen. Do they call themselves anything? The Milk Riders. The Milk Riders! <laughs> of course they called themselves the Milk Riders. We, yes, we, somehow it was dubbed that name and it stuck. I love that. Yeah, so they're I, great. They're a great group. They're the Sirens Women Motorcycle Club of New York City, and I approached them when I heard that Brazil used moped riders to right. help their milk banks in Brazil. I just thought, we need something in New York that's a little different. And so I just did a Google search for female motorcycle club, and this club came up, and I just called them out of the blue and presented the project to them, and they loved it. And they're a fabulous group of women. That is fantastic. Yeah, we've received a lot of attention. Or they've received a lot of attention, too. So they can pick up milk from our local depots and bring them to the milk bank, and they will also deliver to recipients who need mm -hmm. milk. And they will also um, deliver to hospitals in an emergency. Fantastic. They've done all of the above. Wow. Okay, now I want to talk to them as well. <laughs> um, can you tell me really quickly before we get out of here, people who are interested and want to learn more about the Milk Bank, how do they do that? They can go to our website at nymilkbank.org. There's a lot mm -hmm. of information there on becoming a donor or we're raising funds because we're expanding and moving. So we're moving from Hastings to Valhalla. And mm -hmm. they can just find out more information in general if they want to open up a depot, they want to volunteer and help us in any way. Right. We're more than happy to speak with them. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Julie. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ashley. What if your passion was not socially acceptable, if there were no outlets for expression? Our next guest went and created his own space, the first kids-only drag house. You heard that right. And he's 10 years old, and he's here to tell us all about it. He's from Brooklyn, and his name is Desmond Napolis, or as he's known in the drag world, Desmond is amazing, which he is. Welcome to the show, Desmond. It's nice to meet you. It's lovely to meet you, too. You look amazing. 
For those of you listening to the podcast right now, I wanted to describe Desmond's outfit. He's wearing a navy blue cardigan sweater with sparkly gold emblazoned Desi is amazing on one side, a navy sequin skirt, white tights, silver two-inch heels that are strappy. He's wearing some really colorful patterned socks. They're pink and yellow. He also has this little hat on. It's so adorable. I can barely describe it, but it's a sequin beret. He's a lovely, wonderful, beautiful-looking kid. He has on a silver necklace that's knotted at the end with pink lipstick, powder blue paper cutouts for his eyelashes. A wonderful, creative, colorful look. Can you tell me really quickly, when did you realize drag was your passion? Um, when I realized drag was my passion when I was two years old, Wow. I would take my mom's towels and bed sheets mm -hmm. and anything I could grab to make an outfit and put them over my head and wrap them around my body to make pretend wigs and dresses. Mm -hmm. And I would um, clump around her heels endlessly, and I still do. How does it feel to be all dressed up? I like it. Mm -hmm. I, like, I like all the makeup. The best part, of it basically, is makeup and how um, the outfits look like. They don't look like they were just purchased from a thrift store. Right. Um, a cheap gift store. Mm -hmm. They look like something that you've really curated and put together yeah. beautifully. I like that. What did you do to figure out how to do your makeup? Because I'm struggling right now to figure out how to do my makeup, and I'm 30 years old, and you seem to have it figured out. So how did you start learning? Um, well, when I started doing this type of makeup was in August after I um, brunt brought a bunch of makeup to a photo shoot mm -hmm. and my mom started helping me and then I was like, I want to be able to do makeup. Um, mm -hmm. So I started practicing, practicing and practicing and, and after Christmas I got tons and tons of makeup. So so then I could start doing face paint and everything. Mm -hmm. And um, my advice to anybody who um, is having a hard time doing makeup, just practice, practice, practice and then you'll be perfect. Fantastic. So tell me about the Drag Club for Kids. How did that come about? Um, well, it's actually an online site. Mm -hmm. um, not online site, but it's um, like a place where um, kids can connect online. Um, mm -hmm. And we are, me and my mom are working on finding a social um, network for the drag kids to, um, to like get together and chat and mm -hmm. post. Because we were going to do it on Facebook, but um, since all the hate on Facebook, we decided right. that um, no, because we might get banned, and then my Facebook page would go whoosh that makes out sense. the window. That so, makes sense. How many kids are involved with drag kids? Uh, in the house? Mm-hmm. About 27. 27 kids? Yeah. From all over? Yeah. Wow. What are some of the other places that they come from? Uh, there's some that come from San Francisco. Um, one of them is CJ. Um, Catastrophe Jess, who lives in New York here, wow. um, some in um, the UK, mm -hmm. and two in Australia, I believe. That's amazing. So this is global. This yeah. is all around the world. That's yeah. wonderful. One of the things you mentioned a little bit was that you wanted to maybe do something on Facebook, but there's a lot of hate there. Yeah. Do you get hate sometimes from people? How do you deal with that? Well, I don't. I can't ever read it because my mom always, and my PR person, Stephanie, I love her. Yeah. Um, um, she um, 
gets all the hate out and mm -hmm. those bad articles that threaten us or saying that um, I'm the end of the world um, or that um, my parents should be arrested or put in, I'm put into a mental asylum or um, saying that she should have a, she should throw herself in the river and have a millstone around her neck. And I don't know how these people get these ideas. I mean, yeah. I, they're really bad ideas. And nobody's you know forcing better. me. Nobody's forcing me at all. Right. And I I love doing what I do, and I always will. Desmond, listen. I'm going to tell you this right now. Look me in my eyes. If somebody comes for you, they're going to have to mess with me. Okay. And I got okay. Okay. Tell them Ashley Ford over at One One Two BK. They can come see her before they come see you, okay? okay. All right, fantastic. Yes. The final thing here that I wanna ask you, do you have any message for other kids out there who are interested in drag or who like drag, but who feel nervous about getting involved? If you feel nervous about doing drag, um, you should just do it and just be yourself always mm -hmm. because um, it doesn't matter what anyone says. Um, and if, if your parents find out and they say, um, we're not gonna let this happen, we're gonna kick you out unless you don't stop doing it, or um, um, we're just gonna kick you out automatically because we don't want you because you're gay or whatever, um, they can go to the LGBTQ center um, and um, they will ha be able to find a program where they can um, like feel safe, yeah, feel and express safe. themselves a little or bit. Or if they have friends that are, are supportive, mm -hmm. um, that's my advice. And when you do drag, just make sure you be yourself always, no matter what anyone critiques you of your outfit, your makeup, or anything you do. Just be you. Yeah, just be you always. Well, keep being you, Desmond. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. It's really an honor to be on TV. This is my first time. Uh, and my motto is, be yourself always, no matter what anyone says. I like that motto. Thank you so much. And thanks for joining us today. On the show tomorrow, Brian Vines will be hosting, and he'll be talking to the head of the Young Republicans of Brooklyn. And we want your questions, so please send them to 112BKComments at BrickArtsMedia.org. Also, a conversation with the Assembly member for Brooklyn's 44th District. He's a Democrat, in case you were wondering. You can follow me on Desmond is Amazing on um, No Spaces on Instagram. Um, Desmond is Amazing, No Spaces. On Instagram. On and Instagram. Desmond is Amazing on YouTube and Desmond underscore Amazing on Twitter and Desmond is Amazing on Facebook. Love you. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Haugasek. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112BKpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.